after the last Suicide Squad movie, WB releasing another one seems like one of the squad suicide missions. How did it turn out? Find out in this week's episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Ladies and gentle people, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. This week we are tackling the big one. Did James Gunn's The Suicide Squad actually surpass the previous movie? Did it actually turn out well? Did this director leaping across from the MCU to the DCEU have a positive impact? But before we dive in too deep, it's all as always time for... That's right, it's time for some nerd news. Chris, what have you got? Well, a few months back, we reported that writer Nick Spencer would be leaving the Amazing Spider-Man title in favor of a liaison position at digital newsletters platform Substack. In a detailed New York Times piece, writer George Jean Gustines reports that Spencer approached Substack last year during the pandemic while production of new comics was halted in an attempt to find a new way to connect with readers. Now, it would appear that many big names in the industry are following Spencer with the all-enticing prospect of maintaining complete ownership of any new characters that they create on the platform. Jonathan Hickman, Saladin Ahmed, Scott Snyder, and James Tinian IV are all reported to be among the initial set of creators on the Substack roster, with more still to be announced. Tinian, who just took home the Eisner Award for Best Writer, announced that he would be stepping away from writing Batman for DC in favor of a creator-owned series and the Substack newsletter. Tenian said, quote, This wasn't an easy decision. In order to invest my time in new material, I needed to choose. I could not do both, end quote. One of Tinian's uh, announced projects for Substack will be an anthology of stories centered on alien encounters entitled Blue Book, a collaboration with artist Michael Avon Oming, Hickman, who has breathed new life into the X franchise for Marvel Comics and brought mutants back from the edge of extinction, reportedly has been postulating on the idea of digital comics since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, saying, quote, I found the things you can potentially do with it to be very fascinating. I love the idea of surprising the reader again, end quote. Hickman's big project for Substack is titled Three Worlds, Three Moons, and will give readers a behind-the-curtain glimpse at the step-by-step process in creating an expansive fictional universe, one of Hickman's calling cards. Much in the same style of the X-Men books, Hickman will be collaborating with a core stable of writers, including Rom V and Teeny Howard. Art will be provided by Mike Del Mundo and Mike Huddleston. On the collaborative work style, Hickman said, quote, We're treating it like a bunch of guys jamming together on a concept album, but we're calling it a concept universe. If someone is having a heavy week or a heavy month, someone else can pick up the slack, end quote. While recent reports detail comic creators garnering mere pennies when compared to the box office income of their creations on screen, this will be a fascinating endeavor to watch develop. Dave, your thoughts? I'm really of a couple different minds here. <clears throat> On the one hand, I cannot in any way, shape, or form fault any comic book creators for, uh, for stepping away from the big two in favor of anything creator-owned. As you yourself mentioned just a second ago, um, creating something incredible, writing a fantastic stories uh, for the big two doesn't exactly pay well. And even if those stories then serve as inspiration for major blockbusters, that doesn't exactly lead to a substantial uh, benefit either for those creators. So striking out on your own and doing something creator-owned, um, th- that's always smart. That being said, I am not 100% convinced of this Substack. Uh, delivery method, this whole newsletter thing. Uh, I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around what this might look like. Uh, we're going to get like a few pages every week in our in our you know inbox or something for our, from our you know email, like an email newsletter or something. The whole thing seems a, an odd 
um, format and our art delivery method for comic books. Um, maybe it catches on. Um, and the fact that people are experimenting with comics is always a good thing. But the whole thing reminds me a little bit of Quibi. I don't know if you remember Quibi, Chris, but this was this like, you know, I remember short... it for 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it, it was only around for six months. But this like short form streaming platform, everything was supposed to be like 10 minutes long or something. And apparently some of the content that was created there was quite good. But the problem was that the delivery method and the limitation of those 10 minutes uh, ultimately uh, just didn't catch on. And so I have no doubt that some of these stories that these you know top name creators are going to come up with are going to be really good. But is this delivery method ultimately going to catch on? I'm not so sure about that. I would not be surprised if in a couple of years, all of this stuff ends up being collected in trade paperbacks and shows up, you know, on Comixology and in our local, uh, you know, comic book store, Chris. Yeah, that's my thought process as well. You know, in the struggles for evolution, Sometimes the first attempt is not so successful. And and I think with the the shutdown of, you know, new comic production, people were scrapping for new ideas and how do we evolve? And and, and in some ways, you know, some things were successful and we'll, we'll you know, it's it's the, the prospect of this is still to be determined. Um, I do love the idea of, you know, creator owned projects. It's just. The, the other thing for me is where do we draw the line as far as spending? We've chronicled this on the show before with so many streaming platforms as far as visual video media with the things Netflix is continuing to go up. Disney Plus is raising their prices. HBO Max. I'm fortunate enough that it's included in my phone's cell phone plan, but not so many folks are. I mean, these things just keep stacking up. And so, you know, the, the article in the New York Times that I highly recommend our, our listeners check out is, you know, it'll be up to the creators if their thing is a free thing or if it's almost like a Patreon, if you will. Like, is there like a different levels or what have you? But that'll be completely up to creators to determine. So, I mean, I, I have my select stable of things that I subscribe to. It's just going to be hard to as much as I love Jonathan Hickman's work, I don't know what the cost of that is going to be. And then, like you said, what's that going to look like? Um, is that going to be as satisfying as a week or as a biweekly or a monthly comic? I mean, um, I don't know. Part of me is interested in behind the scenes stuff, but, but the majority of me likes reading things in cohesion as one cohesive piece. So I, I don't know what to expect from this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's also the whole concept seems like a day late and a dollar short, ultimately. I mean, if if you're working on something like this specifically because the pandemic is shutting down comic book delivery, and then, you know, for all intents and purposes, no matter where the pandemic stands right now, you know, comic books are rolling again, everything is publishing, everything's on a schedule, everything's hitting stores and digital platforms. And now you come along with this this alternate take it it seems like a, you know too little too late if they would have been able to put something together quickly and get this thing rolling while the comic book shutdown was going on it would have had a real chance of you know catching on as a viable alternative because there was nothing else available but as of right now substack is going to have to you know compete against you know the the whole wednesday warrior system really chris yeah, and he, and here's the thing too. Then, and I've thought about this a lot. You know, we we try our best to feature as many indie creators as possible. You know, but at the same time, that's a slippery slope as well. Like, how many Kickstarters can you contribute to? How many Indiegogo things can you contribute to? And like, you know, it, it gets to be an extensive and expensive thing. Um, and just the sheer fact that DC and Marvel have been operating around for decades. Um, and have these characters that are iconic and that you want to, that you've, you've kind of latched onto and that you want to continue to follow their story. I mean, like it's, it's like any big name corporation, you know, like they've got the big sell. I mean, it's like McDonald's and, you know, Burger King, like they, they are just easily thought of you mean you can easily quickly think of superman what's superman doing what's spider-man doing what's batman up to so like that's something that they're fighting against and willing to have to really swim upstream and create new fascinating and unique characters and you know while we have things like boom studios that are really grabbing you know your attention and mine um it's it's an uphill battle you know yeah that's exactly right chris 
All right, Dave, what is your news story for this week? Yeah, so um, turns out that uh, Tom Taylor uh, has a new project uh, cooking over at DC Comics. That's actually got me really excited. Now, Tom Taylor has is probably most notable for a few different series at DC. Uh, Injustice, obviously. Um, Deceased, uh, both of which are sort of alternate universe tales. But the one that really has uh, captured my heart uh, most recently is his uh, ongoing take on Nightwing. And because of that alone, I find myself extremely excited for what basically is being billed as superheroes meets Game of Thrones. So the the book is actually um, titled Dark Knights of Steel and reinvents uh, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and various other DC superheroes in sort of a medieval fantasy setting. Um, Taylor gave an interview to Entertainment Weekly, and there he said, and I quote, I've spent the last two years creating a new epic fantasy universe for DC Comics, and Dark Knights of Steel is an absolute dream come true. Despite being the writer of the DC horror series Deceased, I'm actually a huge uh, fantasy fan. Combining two of my favorite things, DC superheroes and high fantasy, is my absolute happy place. He goes on to say, Now I get to bring all this together with the incredible Yasmin Putri, who will be serving uh, on art for the series. In the biggest story I could imagine, a tale of war and love, of despair and hope, of betrayal and improbable alliances forged in battle. Uh, the series will feature all new origins for Batman and Superman, for Harley Quinn and Black Lightning, and is for fans of shows like Game of Thrones and Critical Role. Now, I find this extremely uh, intriguing. Uh, I'll freely admit that high fantasy has probably been the one thing that has never captured my imagination quite as much as science fiction. But uh, certain fantasy uh, settings, particularly medieval fantasy, has appealed to me. And so seeing these characters reinvented in the setting is extremely interesting to me. Um, it is a 12-part limited series right now, although if it's successful, I cannot imagine that they won't have, you know, spin-offs and sequels. Um, the art looks absolutely gorgeous from the um, promo images released. Uh, I find this whole venture to be extremely exciting. It feels very much in the vein of the old um, Elseworlds tales that DC used to put out with, uh, you know, frequent regularity. So I'm very excited about this, Chris. What are your thoughts? Okay, so Tom does it again because he also has a book uh, that's coming very, very soon here in October for Marvel card called Dark Ages, which seems very, very similar of the same vein. Something about, like, some, something in New York goes dark and we're reduced to the Dark Ages. Go, you know, go figure with the title. So this, is this uh, I'm a huge fantasy fan. So it looks like he is kind of, you know, playing both sides here and just this alternate reality of like superhero meets fantasy. Like I am in, I am sold and I'm super excited to check both of these series out. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Chris. Well, that's it for nerd news. Stick around after a short break. We'll be back with an in-depth analysis of James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. Welcome back, ladies and gentle people. It is time for an in-depth review of James Gunn's The Suicide Squad in this week's... We have to, of course, mention that James Gunn's Suicide Squad, which recently released, is sort of a sequel, sort of a reboot, but also neither one of those things to 2016's Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayer. And so uh, a lot of expectations have been uh, riding on this movie, especially considering James Gunn has been a traditionally more of an MCU guy working on the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, now jumping ship over to DC for this movie before returning to the MCU for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and a holiday special. So, you know, what do James Gunn's sensibilities mean to the Suicide Squad? It's going to be an extremely interesting review, I believe. As always, when Chris and I dive deep, deep into a singular movie, we each have chosen three big likes and three big dislikes of the movie. Chris, without further ado, hit us with your first like of the Suicide Squad. In addition to what you said, Dave, I'd also like to add that it's really interesting to see James Gunn 
in in a sense let loose because of the R rating of this film. So he's completely unfettered. And that was something that I went into viewing this with great interest. What does a rated R James Gunn superhero product look like? Um, And for me, the first thing, well, technically the first thing, I let you call dibs this time. We we take turns. You call dibs this time. It's a DC movie, so you call dibs. Uh, you you got my first one, but one A for me, Dave. Margot Robbie is flawless. Like Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn has completely pulled a one eighty for me on the character. I gotta be completely honest here. Keep it one hundred, as the kiddies say. I had no interest in the Harley Quinn character at all for my entire fandom. Like I did not care about the character. I found her highly annoying. Um, when she would pop up in the animated series, I was like, Oh my God, Bruce, just please send her to Arkham. Um, when she shut up in video games, I was like, can we just skip this scene, this cinematic and, um, super, super annoying. But the combination of the acting chops of Margot Robbie and here's an additional nerd commendation, I guess, the Harley Quinn animated show. I absolutely love the character now. So I kind of get it like the whole shtick. It makes so much more sense. Like I was, I was completely misunderstanding everything about the character. And that is an absolute credit to the skill, both of the writers and the performers on the animated series, but also to Margot Robbie. And she really, this in addition to like the criminally underrated birds of prey film that I will sing the praises of until the cows come home. This is just really Margot Robbie at her best and the most fleshed out. Um, It's almost like birds of prey was like this origin story. And we were getting there to telling the whole story. She was finally liberated from the Joker and kind of living on her own, being her own person, being her own individual. And now this was just, Right. It was just raw. It was out there. And it was a beautiful thing to watch. I mean, there's that one scene. I mean, full spoilers here. When she strangles the dude with her freaking thighs, I felt like my neck snapped in that scene. It was just freaking incredible. And she did that stunt herself. So everything about Harley in this movie was pitch perfect, was wonderful, and completely converted me to Team Harley Quinn. And I absolutely loved it. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting that you say that because I came from uh, from this, you know, to this character from a completely different angle. Uh, I was a big fan of the Harley Quinn character in the animated series. I, I didn't quite enjoy the character as much in the Arkham games because there was already a little bit of that increasing um, sexualization of the character that uh, kind of bugged me a little bit. Um, and then, you know, Margot Robbie came along in the original Suicide Squad movie directed by David Ayer where she was kind of played off as like this this dumb blonde eye candy thing, which really just ran all over me. Uh, and although I couldn't really fall, fault Robbie's performance itself, I didn't like that particular take on the character. So for me, uh, The Suicide Squad now uh, is, is kind of been like Margot Robbie's redemption tour. You know, she made huge leaps as the character in... Uh, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, which was a fantastic little film, I think highly underappreciated. Um, and then she kind of completed this transformation to a version of Harley Quinn that is, you know, closer in spirit, I would say, to the original conception of the character, uh, and at the same time blends very well with the more modern notion of her independence and, and liberty away from the Joker. It's just a really, really strong performance and a really, really strong take on that character. And I find myself, you know, very, very pleased with where Margot Robbie's performance as Harley Quinn has ended up. And, you know, there's been rumors floating around that James Gunn might be interested in making a Gotham City Sirens movie, which famously features Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, and Catwoman. And I would be totally there for something like that, in particular, after this this whole setup of the Harley Quinn character and this absolutely flawless performance by Margot Robbie. Absolutely. And, I, I, and you know, that, that there's a particular scene where she kills the dictator of Corto Maltese. And she delivers this beautifully emotional and deep and raw like monologue about how her choice in men has been so terrible and how she has to resort to these extreme measures when she sees red flags. And it just felt like it was setting up for Poison Ivy. And I I need them on the screen together. I love that relationship. The animated show 
has completely sold me so much so that I'm going to go read all the comics about them. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful pairing as chaotic and as crazy as it is. I absolutely love it. Uh, how, how pure their relationship is. Yeah. There's, I, I have nothing to add to that. I love the animated series as well. Um, I think it's a great take on the character too. Uh, it seems like Harley Quinn really seems to thrive when you, when you put her in sort of an R rated setting. Yeah. Um, also, I did not see that coming from Kaylee Kuoko. Like, color me impressed. Like, I did not see that happening. That incredible. All right, so we are not here to review that show as as perfect as it is. Dave, you got the you called dibs on this one. What is your first big like of the Suicide Squad? Well, I mean, you have to go straight to the heart of the movie, and there were so many good characters. But the one that, to me, at the very least, stole the show was no, not King Shark, but Ratcatcher 2, which was, of course, uh, played by Daniela Melchior. Uh, you know, the Ratcatcher uh, character, both Ratcatcher 1 and 2, is kind of a, sort of a D-list character, really, in uh, in the comics. And so, once again, James Gunn likes to do this thing where he takes, like, really um, underused, underappreciated characters and, you know, tries to put a spin on them that's a little you know, different and new and fresh and and thereby kind of shines a spotlight on them and gives them new appreciation. It's kind of like uh, Rocket Raccoon and, and Groot, right, in, in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And here he did it again with Ratcatcher 2. And, you know, she, she's just such a relatable character. I mean, from the moment that she's, you know, woken up in her cell in, in Belarev and just doesn't want to get up. I mean, who, who hasn't been there before, right? <laughs> I, I feel like that most days, to be honest with you. <laughs> And just, you know, like, I'm not going to get up. And then just not just that she's excessively sleepy, but then every time that she is awake, she, you know, she's so in the moment with with the people on the team with her. There's a kindness to her that is so surprising in a group of villains. There's a, there's a big heart there that is very, very appealing in the character. Um, you know, shout out also to, you know, the brief cameo by uh, Taika Waititi as her, her dad, the original rat catcher. Um, which, you know, that end scene when she calls on the rats to take down Star or the Conqueror, um, it kind of, you know, leaves a little tear in your eye, which is not what you expect at that point in this particular movie, considering how hard and gross and mean that movie has been going so far. So I, th- I think she absolutely stole the show, a great performance, a great reinterpretation of that character. I was just pleased from start to finish. To me, um, more than any other character in the movie, Ratcatcher 2 served as sort of the through line and the heart of the movie, Chris. Yeah, for sure. And I said this before we hit the record button, like it was so clearly written for for you know people who enjoy things like that. It was is very similar to the character of Yelena and you know why I called dibs when we reviewed the Black Widow um film. You, you know, and it's it's very clearly telegraphed, but I don't care. Like they're given all the lines that evoke emotion and meaning and heart and just warm, fuzzy feelings. And and I don't care. I lap it up every time. And and particularly the scene that that made that brought tears to my eyes was the scene with her father played geniusly by Taika Waititi of, you know, why rats, papa? And, you know, the lats are the most reviled creature on earth. Uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but if they can serve a purpose, then, you know, so can we or or who can't or something to that effect. And and then it leads directly into that scene where the rats completely take down Starro. And it's just absolutely delivers. And yes, it's clearly telegraphed. And yes, it's completely easily scripted, but I'm, I'm here for it. And it absolutely captured my heart. Yeah, I, I, I cannot agree more, Chris. All right, Chris, what is your second big like of the Suicide Squad? All right, so I was already predisposed to love this character because I'm the president, founder, and CEO of the Idris Elba fan club, as I've detailed on the show before. But I love what they did with Bloodsport, and I love how they sidestepped and avoided some of the tropes of, like, the reluctant anti-hero. Like, even so far as to go with, like, this, the F-U, F-U, no, F-U, back and forth between, like, his daughter that he clearly did not want. So it's it's so unbelievable. I hate when movies just like, oh, now he's just going to turn soft and be a dad and you know 
it pivoted from that. And like, so it didn't go the way you think it would. And, you know, how many times have we seen like the prison scene where they touch hands through the glass and it was totally not that loved it. Um, also just the power set of like the way his weapons formulated and, you know, his gear formulated and he was able to detect things and radar. It was super cool, uh, you know, visualizing that. Um, and, and one critic that I read, um, I believe it was on Roger Ebert.com, uh, Roger Ebert's website was like, this was like a perfect, like, you know, depiction of, of Idris Elba in, in an action lead. And we really need to start churning up those Idris Elba for James Bond rumors again. Like, uh, he has the gravitas to lead an action film like this. And this is, if, if memory serves, this is, he's not typically in a film like that is just so action packed and I'm absolutely here for it. So, I mean, like I said, I was predisposed to love the character. Um, I love the back and forth. Um, like somebody said, the pissing contest between him and, and Peacemaker. Um, I'm interested to dive into that character here in a second, but um, I, I loved everything about Bloodsport. Yeah, you know, I I can't disagree. Um, Idris Elba is a fantastic actor to begin with. Uh, and I really like how they reinterpreted Bloodsport here, particularly, you know, the, the weapons and the power set and his gear. If I remember correctly, in the comic books for a while, he was opening basically like small dimensional portals and pulling guns out of like an arsenal he had stored somewhere, which uh, could have also been visually interesting. But I really liked sort of, you know, the various pieces of gear on his suit and how he would like take them off and assemble them. Uh, th that was very, very neat. And, you know, Idris Elba is such a good actor. Um, you know, it still bothers me, really bothers me a lot what happened with the Dark Tower movie adaptation, because I thought, you know, casting him uh, as Roland Deschain was absolutely a genius move. And then that whole production, the directing, the script just totally let him down. We could have had a fantastic uh, adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower cycle with Idris Elba in the lead, but they had to totally poop the bit there. Um, so yeah, I love I love this version of Bloodsport. I like how they reinterpreted him. It works from from top to bottom. I totally agree, Chris. I, I also love uh, this. Just brought to memory the scene. Going back to the scene with his daughter, he's like, you know, my father screwed me up basically, and I was like, I'm, I begged you to stay away from people like me. So like, it wasn't that like whole like, oh, there's this you know endearing quality that the, the bad boy, but with like a soft underbelly. Uh, it, was, it was a nice shift from where the tropes usually go. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dave, you're going big for your next like. Well, I think we got a kaiju in this mother. Um, <laughs> look, what it comes down to is simply this. There are things in DC Comics that are oftentimes considered to be too big, too weird, uh, too strange to put on film. And I always thought that uh, most of Hollywood would just want to stay away from something like Starro the Conqueror, which is such a fascinating character. Been around forever. Uh, first appearance was in uh, The Brave and the Bold, number 28, back in 1960, March of 1960, if I remember right. Um, and just, you know, has made great appearances throughout DC Comics history, usually uh, as a Justice League villain. But there's just something so, so creepy um, about Starro, you know, those little drone things, pieces of him that he shoots out and they settle on people's faces and take them over, you know, invasion of the body snatcher style. And there's so many good stories where he starts taking over superheroes and uses them against other superheroes. And it's just, it's a great character, but because he's basically a ginormous starfish, there's always been that sense. I think that this is not something we'll ever see on the big screen. And I'd be darned if James Gunn didn't go for it. And it worked. It was incredible. It looked awesome. And the only regret I have is that, A, Starro appeared in a Suicide Squad movie, not in a Justice League movie. And B, you know, that he was unceremoniously killed off, which means we never get the opportunity to see, you know, Starro, not sort of as this, this tragic monster, but the actual full-on villain he oftentimes is, in the comic books, taking on, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the A-listers, because, man, I would be totally here for that, Chris. I'm just excited that Starro made it to the big screen in any way, shape, or form at all. I just thought that's never going to happen. Yeah, I just, I'm a, I'm a fan of, and here's the thing, too, as as remedial as I am in my, my DC fandom, like that's kind of the blessing of using lesser known characters like that. So this is all like new to me and it feels 
I mean, this is, you know, a token thing to say, but it feels like Guardians, like I felt in 2014. Like these are all new things and the uh, the expectations can only go up from here because I know absolutely nothing about the majority of these characters. And so I love I love when superhero movies and, you know, genre films just lean into it and they're unapologetically weird and nerdy. Like you can you can do both. Like you can go for you know, like the 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 general pop audience um, and, and still be true to who you are. And I love authenticity. It's like one of my core values is to be as authentic as possible. And if people don't vibe with it, then that's fine. But like, don't forget who you are and to just be this unapologetically weird and nerdy and sci fi and like Twilight Zone esque. Like, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I did, too, Chris. Made me very, very happy to see Starro on the big screen. All right, Chris, what is your third and final big like of the Suicide Squad? All right, you hurt my feelings a little bit when you denied him earlier, but I love me some Nanawe. I mean, like, Dave, where in in what other film are we going to get Sylvester Stallone voicing a humanoid shark? I love Nanawe, man, and I love... It's funny because I also adore Ron Funches' take on the character in the animated series, uh, Harley Quinn. So like, I was like, okay, this is a completely different take on the character. This is completely different to the King Shark that I've seen, you know, even as a little bit in like the comics and like the, I think I saw it in the Flash TV show. So like it had so many different iterations of King Shark. Um, but I love what they did with this. Even the name of Nanawe, which, you know, I think they even hinted at in the film as like some Pacific Islander, Hawaiian, like mythological ties. And, you know, I'm a mythology nut, so it doesn't take much to tickle that fancy for me. Um, I even saw like somebody on TikTok made a really cool like background history of the story. And like, oh, I, I just nerded out over that. So I loved everything about Nanawe, the Nom Nom stuff just straight up shredding villains, you know, um, in half, just devouring them. Loved it. I love everything about Nanawe. See, in the moment watching it, I felt exactly the same way. I thought it was a great character, very fun, brought, you know, great gore. And at the same time, also great humor. I absolutely love when he says he's going to wear a disguise. Yeah. What kind of disguise? Fake mustache. I just, (laughs) you know, those, those little moments were absolutely priceless. And, his interplay uh, with Ratcatcher 2 was actually really interesting too to me. You know, sitting on it a little bit, it, it did feel after a while like uh, it, it was sort of, you know, Groot 2.0. Ah, you took the words you know? from my mouth. You and took that, the words from my mouth. Yeah, exactly. And so that, so that was the one thing that bothered me a little bit, you know, the limited vocabulary, taking that character and kind of, you know, bringing his intelligence or his communication skills down a little bit to, to you know, get humor from that. It felt a little bit Groot-ish to me. Um, and I don't think, although it's an interesting interpretation of this character, I don't think that's really uh, the nature of, of the King Shark character. Now, it worked in the context of this movie. It's undeniable. Sylvester Stallone did a good job voicing the character and there was a lot of fun to be had, but this is the one place where I felt a little bit like maybe James Gunn was starting to, you know, repeat his, his old tricks kind of playing, you know, playing the hits, so to speak, by, by bringing his DC version of Groot in, so to speak. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And I I get that now that like, as you were talking, I was like, it's Groot. And then you said it as it popped into my brain. So like, I totally get that. Um, but at the same time, like I said with Ratcatcher, like I'm 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 lapping it up. I'm there for it. Um, so I'd I'd be interested to see like the continuation of this. Does he develop more intellectually speaking? Like where are we going to go with this character? Um, but I, I definitely see what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to I'd love to see more of the character and see him you know grow and develop. Absolutely, I would love that. All right, Dave. So I can't say that I have much to comment on because I couldn't get 10 minutes into the first one. But what is your third and final like? Yeah, so I went and and I watched David Ayer's Suicide Squad. And look, um, we're, we're going to have to talk about it. Uh, so I actually really like how, how this movie, James Gunn's movie, course corrects from the previous movie. Now, in fairness, uh, a little background. So uh, Ayer is directing the Suicide Squad movie. And uh, in that context, Batman v Superman releases and is criticized fairly, I think, for being a pretty dark movie and and overall pretty darn depressing and 
and there's not a lot of light or hope or humor or anything there. And I think that critique stung pretty strong at Warner, who then decided, hey, you know, Ayer is making the Suicide Squad movie. He is all, it's also very dark, depressing, and, and, and you know, we're going to release this movie and it's going to be like, oh, DC is just a dark and depressing place. So there was a, a course correction going on in that movie where they decided to to try to make it a little bit more humorous, to dial back some of the violence, to, you know, cut parts of Jared Leto's Joker out, which, fr- frankly, that decision I agreed with. Um, but what we ended up with then in the theater, sort of a, a, a Frankenstein creation of a movie, uh, one that wasn't really true to Ayer's vision as a director, but one that also really didn't accomplish what it set out to do, um, to basically imitate the style of something like Guardians of the Galaxy. And so the movie was a mess. It was just not good. Now, whether a quote-unquote David Ayer cut would be better is arguable because ultimately ultimately it's still pretty you know dark, dreary, and humorless. And there are still problems in that movie, like I alluded to earlier with the over-sexualization of Harley Quinn, um, that I just kind of took offense at. So what did I like really about The Suicide Squad? Well, this is the course correction, I think, in some ways that Warner was looking for. They had their cake and ate it too. You know, you still have this R-rated, hyper-violent movie, but it also has, you know, that that undertone of heart, and it has an undertone of humor to it. And this works extremely well for The Suicide Squad. So, you know, on the one hand, the 2016 movie was, you know, executives were setting out to basically imitate James Gunn and his take on Guardians of the Galaxy. And now they just brought the guy in themselves and said, look, you know, why don't you go ahead and do it? And yes, he did it right. I think it's a much better movie than what we saw in 2016. And uh, I really, really, really loved seeing a good take on that concept on the big screen. It, It was the proper course correction at the right time, Chris. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I can't make a whole lot of commentary on this because I couldn't get past the first 10 minutes. It was as soon as Jared Leto came on the screen, I had to turn it off. Like I I just closed the HBO Max app. Couldn't watch it anymore. Um, It's just so horrific. I, I just and I'm just and I feel bad, you know, based on what you've just presented. I feel bad for David Ayer. I don't know how much better this Ayer cut would be, but also I'm I'm so go figure i'm so worn out by this whole release the insert name cut i'm just so tired of the backtracking i want to go forward like i want an i want the dceu to mean something i want it to have this you you know vision and this i almost put this in one of my dislikes for the film um and not to get too negative too early and this is no fault of this film but i'm like where the hell do we go from here and that's not necessarily the fault of James Gunn or the Suicide Squad. It's it's this fun, violent romp of a film. But like, you know, and, and it kind of harkens back to the last episode that we did of like our hopes. I don't I'm just so unclear as to where we're going to go with the DC Extended Universe. And I, I really just don't want to go backwards again. I think the thing that we're cruising towards, which I find incredibly depressing, is that they're going to pull a uh, DC Comics on the DC Extended Universe and basically do an in-story reboot, probably with the Flash movie. They're going to do some kind of Barry goes back in time, messes with the timeline, now things are different. I think that's what we're cruising for, ultimately. Which, you know, I'm not not particularly excited about, to be honest with you. Yep. (laughs) All right, Chris, now that we're getting negative, let's go there all the way. What is your first dislike of the Suicide Squad? Uh, So the biggest dislike that I have, and the only one that was really profound, is I'm so tired of the Latin American dictator trope. I'm so tired of seeing the stereotypical representation of Latin American countries as they're either overrun by drug cartels or they have this overly militaristic dictator. It's just, it's just really tired. And I know that might be a personal cause of mine, you know, being a a Spanish teacher and someone who is, you know, invested in Latinx culture. It just, it just breaks my heart to see it trotted out again and again and again. So I, I could have done without just another Latin American Spanish speaking country that is, 
you know, textbook dictators and military coup. Like I could have done something else with that. See, no, really, I I, I, I totally <laughs> agree with that. Uh, I also think it's funny that um, you know Hollywood still uses um, dictator uh, as sort of this like instant shorthand of like bad government. Look, you don't need to have a dictator to have a crappy government. You don't need to have a dictator to have a, a, a an inept person in charge ultimately. Um, or a government that does things that maybe they shouldn't do or that their people are not aware of, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. I guess my point is um, it, it would have not changed much in the story just to drop the dictator angle and just have that guy be like, you know, the, pre- the president of, of, of the country and finished. I, I don't think um, making him a dictator added anything to the story, Chris. And, you know, I even speculated this with a friend who'd seen it as well um, and who, who is of Latinx descent and, and agreed with, you know, the, the harmful stereotypes that are being propagated here. Um, you know, like, why not? OK, it's clear. And I and I did appreciate this commentary of, you know, um, some people might be have hurt feelings about it. But like the American government is secretly behind some of this stuff, which. I mean, study an American history book. I'm sorry if it hurts your feelings, but like that's the truth of it. So why not make this an island off the American coast and it's English speaking Americans that are behind this? I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be this character-y stuff. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be the Russians. It doesn't have to be the Nazi Germans. I know that's yours. Um, it doesn't have to be the, the militaristic Latin Americans. Like it's just some idiot off the coast of the United States. I think that's fair. Uh, Dave, I'm really interested to see your take on this. Again, it is the blessing and the curse for me, not knowing a whole lot of background on these characters. So what is your first big dislike? Yeah, I'm probably going to catch some flack for this, but I really didn't like the Peacemaker character in this movie at all. Don't get me wrong. I really liked his um, uh, interplay, I guess we could say, with Bloodsport. I really thought that was that was fun. Um but, you know, as the movie went on, especially early on in the movie, the first, you know, half or so, it became increasingly apparent to me that the, that Peacemaker was a bad guy among bad guys. And it became so apparent because every single character had these humanizing moments um, that made them at least, you know, semi-sympathetic. You know, Harley's little speech about, you know, bad exes. Uh, Ratcatcher and her, her, you know, discussion of her father, blood sports situation with um, his daughter. Uh, then you have King Shark not having any friends, like you know, um, polka dot man, polka dot man. Yeah. Oh my God, polka dot man's mom. Oh, how did that not make our likes list? How in the world? In a light, in a lightning round, that would have definitely. Yes. Made it. So all of these characters that are, you know, quote unquote, main characters in this movie had these these moments of of redeeming qualities and Peacemaker never got one. And so the longer the movie went on, the more I sat down, I was like, this guy's going to turn on everybody like this guy's just going to turn on everybody like these are bad guys. But he he's the real bad guy, like he's a bad guy among bad guys. It was very, very apparent because he never got this humanizing moment. And I think this is really one of the missteps of the movie, because if they would have went ahead and given him a humanizing moment, I don't think we would have seen that double cross coming between him and and Rick Flagg. Um, and on top of that, I think the whole thing where he's hesitant to kill Rick Flagg came across as really disingenuous in the moment. Um, I think that Bloodsport had Peacemaker's number from the get-go when he basically said towards the beginning of the movie, you you basically are hiding behind the notion of peace because you like to do bad things. And I think that's what it comes down to. And they never gave us a hint that that there was more to him than that. And so when he says, you know, about, about Rick Flagg, I don't want to kill you, you're a hero and all that. I, I didn't buy it for a second. And I think that's that I think that's a failure of the movie. If they would have given him a humanizing moment earlier on, that moment would have hit harder. Um and the character would have been more intriguing than he than he was. As he was, he was f- a fun diversion and a fun foil for Bloodsport. But beyond that, I don't think he really resonated as a character, which makes it odd that this is the one that's going to be getting an HBO Max TV show. 
Well, it's funny that you say that. And I think it was a mistake. I think it was a huge mistake announcing that series before the movie released because we knew who was going to survive. I mean, that 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 I mean puts the cart before the horse. So, spoiler end credit scene, oh, he's still alive. Like surprise surprise. And I totally agree. Like it's really interesting that you say that and and that would have been a really simple one-off scene like they would have had with the other individuals been easy to do it and, and introduced some nuance to this character. I mean, for me, he screams like this right wing liberty and freedom type character, but and we've seen those characters in other mediums before and they have humanizing moments. Now, whether you agree that that is enough to justify their behavior when you're in a film like this, it doesn't really matter because everybody's playing hard and fast with the quote unquote rules. But um, I just hope none of our listeners tell you to go eat a bag of d- Well, I'm, I'm sure they will. I've, I've actually been told much worse on Twitter lately. So, <laughs> All right, Chris, what is your uh, second dislike of uh, The Suicide Squad? So I didn't really have three big dislikes. Uh, so two and three are really nitpicks for me. Uh, the second dislike, I guess, is uh, Deus Ex Javelin. I thought like the Javelin thing didn't really have the gravitas that they hoped it would. Like Harley's like, you know, this sign from God or whoever that of something to do. And it just didn't really have the meeting that I think they wanted it to. So the Javelin thing was a little bit silly to me and just really didn't mean anything. You know, I can agree with that just from the perspective that it didn't actually ultimately mean anything, period. I mean, she uses the javelin to like, you know, pierce the eye of Starro and ends up like swimming in his eyeball or something. But but that didn't really put him to an end. It was the rats that did. Yeah. So that whole moment was really odd because it really didn't do anything the way it, you know, the way it was communicated in the movie. It seemed like just a thing she did that really had no major impact. So, yeah, I, I can agree with that. The javelin thing felt like it was building up to something important, and then it kind of just fell flat. All right, Dave, your second dislike legitimately pissed me off, so I'm interested to to dive into it. Yeah, so the fact that they killed Rick Flagg kind of upset me. Um, he's a you know, really, really good character from the comics. He was not... Um, I think particularly well represented in 2016 Suicide Squad. And then here, you know, the character really started singing and you could see that there was a future for this character and then they killed him off. And that was, it was, it was upsetting and disappointing because, you know, a lot of the characters that they killed, and we can, we can talk a little bit more about that. A lot of the characters that they killed, there wasn't a lot there, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, But here is a character where there was, more story i think to explore and so when you're killing off a character um when there is more story to explore it always seems you know like like from a writing perspective just a total waste the context was also really weird you know so on the one hand rick flag is like they experimented on children and i totally get that and that's very much in character uh for the rick flag character i think he's you know, he is a, a soldier first, a deeply moral guy, but he constantly is being, you know, pushed into these gray zones because he has to work with Task Force X. He has to work for Amanda Waller. He doesn't like operating in those gray zones. He prefers to be out in the open. And and that that moment worked. But then in the context of the beginning of the movie, um, you have the weasel character who killed 27 children and, and, you know, Rick flag just drops that as a, as a joke kind of, Oh, I mean, he's harmless, but you know, he killed 27 children, but he's, he's harmless. And so there's a disconnect, I think between the Rick flag from the beginning of the movie and the Rick flag from the end of the movie. Um, I, I think that was kind of a misstep, but it just seems like such a waste of a character that could have done interesting things in, in sequels. Yeah, so I was surprised to to learn, like I said, I never finished the first one, that he was a returning character. So I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, like you said, it was built up and it was well done this time around. So I was really vibing with this character. He was one of the ones that I was kind of rooting for. Like he was legitimately turned on by Waller and everything and was misled and all these things. So it is one of those you were clearly rooting for. And then, you know, even the circumstances that you previously made with, with Peacemaker really kind of fell flat and it was just, it was really frustrating. 
Yeah, I agree. It is it is frustrating. Uh, and then to see, you know, that the Peacemaker character survives. Look, if they have any kind of sense to them. Um, I don't know if you remember when we we're talking about like the last Jedi Rise of Skywalker situation. Um, I, I kind of dropped that. I thought it would have been interesting if uh, Luke Skywalker was sort of like this, this voice on Kylo Ren's shoulder in Rise of Skywalker, like his force ghost kept appearing to him and taunting him or something. Like if they have half a mind of what they're doing with this Peacemaker show and they do want to humanize the character and give him additional dimensions, wouldn't it be fun if he was guilt-riddled yeah. because of the death of Rick Flagg and he keeps seeing Rick Flagg everywhere as like this ghostly apparition, he's like hallucinating him or something. And then we get a little bit more Rick Flagg and we actually you know do something interesting with Peacemaker. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, or even like traumatic flashbacks or something, some way to involve that because... As it stands right now, he's just like a one note character. And I can't, you know, they're going to have to do some real heavy lifting to make an entire series around him. Yeah, totally. All right, Chris, final dislike of the Suicide Squad. So again, this is more of a nitpick, but, um, and I know this is, you know, you live and die by the sword. And when you're playing, you know, hard and fast with the rules of life and death, um, you know, characters are going to get killed by the wayside. So it, you know, it was legitimately kind of dark twisted and funny how quickly they killed off like the team one, I think it was, but there were some genuinely interesting characters and like that I wanted to watch develop, you know, Michael Rooker coming with James Gunn. I wanted to watch uh, that character. What was his name? What's his name? I'm blanking on it. Oh, uh, anyways, I wanted to watch that character, uh, you know, develop, you know, um, you know, Weasel like was like a fan favorite, but he spoiler alert died immediately because he drowned. Now, while that was freaking hilarious, I would have liked to see somebody, uh, you know, perform mouth to mouth, um, you know, <laughs> something like, you know, pick up that character again. Um, you know, Pete Davidson as Blackguard was hilarious. I mean, you bring in Nathan Fillion. Um, you know, and I still, this is one of the dings on my nerd card. I still haven't watched Firefly, but I mean, like, that's a big name in nerddom. And, you know, while it was hilarious, he's just gone. Um, <laughs> those, those arms flying across and smacking <laughs> people. Slapping people. I mean, like, it's so freaking <laughs> hilarious. Um, oh, God. But yeah, so it's really bothering me that I can't think of Michael Rooker's character's name. Um, and, uh, oh my gosh, but like, so there were legitimately interesting characters that I wanted to watch follow again, you know, to follow and watch them develop, uh, Savant. Oh my God. Finally, I found it. Savant. I wanted to watch Savant develop. I mean, like he's the also perfect freaking intro. You give me Johnny Cash in a prison. I mean, like, come on. I mean, like that's, I know that's playing fan service, if you will, but like Folsom prison as you open on. You know, him throwing that ball. Like, it was a beautiful intro. And then he's just dead. Like, they blow his brains out. And and I get that. Like, you have to, like, okay, we're going to have to actually push the button if somebody goes rogue. But uh, I just wanted to watch those characters a little bit longer. You know, I'm going to go ahead and just launch into my last dislike because I think it really connects with yours very well. So on the one hand, we had characters that had some potential uh, getting killed off maybe a little too fast and on the other hand we had characters that had legitimately no absolute no reason to survive some of the stuff they did and that plot armor um, made it pretty obvious after a while that those characters were going to survive so if you look for example at Bloodsport and how he goes through that building floor after floor after floor like as much as I love him I was like that's bullshit <laughs> yeah I mean the, the guy the guy doesn't have superpowers right or you look at Harley Quinn and the absolute ridiculous amount of crap that she survives in that grand finale including literally swimming in Starro's <laughs> eye um it's just so if if you look at like the characters that got killed off that maybe should have survived and then you know or at least explored further um and then you look at um the plot armor effect particularly on somebody like bloodsport and harley quinn um and of course harley quinn's not gonna die she's you know extremely popular character she's making money for warner but at the same time I don't think you have to make it so darn obvious. I mean, Har Harley Quinn is, in essence, um, 
uh, a psychiatrist who was a gymnast in, in, in college. I mean, that that's literally her background before she, you know, joined the Joker. That, you know, she doesn't have superpowers or anything. So her surviving some of these absolutely ridiculous moments at the end against Starro is, you know, very, very odd, especially considering, you know, that Starro is the kind of character that has taken on the Justice League. Um, it's just, just odd. Yeah, I just don't think it plays well to her power set either. But yeah, as much as I love Bloodsport, when he's falling through the ceiling, like, okay, his his legs, at the very least, his legs are absolutely just dust. Like, there's absolutely no way he survived that. Oh, no, I I, I totally agree. And and look, a, a moment of silence, maybe, for a second, uh, for Mr. Polka Dot. Uh, oh. Yes, I know, I know they call him Polka Dot Man in the movie, but in his first appearance, he was called, in you know, in the comics, Mr. Polka Dot. Like, I love that take on that character. It was such a neat reinvention. And then to just have him stomped like that for a cheap joke, I you know you've made your point. These people will die. And a whole bunch of them did right at the beginning of the movie. I don't think we needed to kill off polka dot man. Like I would, I would have loved to seen him stick around for a little more. I mean, I mean to play devil's advocate that did, that is what he wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. At least he doesn't have to worry about his mother anymore. Yeah. Who apparently, when uh... they turned Starro into his mother, I just fell out of my chair. Yeah, that was that was absolutely amazing. All right, so any final thoughts on the movie, Chris? Uh, I thought, like I said, um, it was fun. It was dark. It was effed up, but I, I really enjoyed it, and um, it gave me it gave me this weird, dark, twisted hope for the DCEU future. Like I, I hope this gives them a springboard. Uh, springboard towards positive momentum. I know the box office numbers are nothing to write home about, but I mean, like we live in a weird world. Delta variant is here. Delta plus, Delta minus, Delta plus or minus, Delta neutrals here. So like, who gives a shit about, you know, the box office performance, you know, you're releasing it the same day on HBO max. You're not going to get the box office numbers you wanted. So I, I really hope that we go somewhere with this. But I had a lot of fun. I'd probably go B plus. What do you say? Yeah, I would probably agree. A minus B plus. I had a lot of fun with this movie. Um, I did not go into it with high hopes, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, just because the you know as much as I like James Gunn's work, the DCU has you know overall not had a great track record. Um, but this this was amazing. I really, really enjoyed it. I had a really great time watching it. So uh, yeah, I, I I would recommend it. If you really like, you know, some messed up stuff, this is the place to be. If you, if you're a fan of Bojack Horseman, this is the movie for you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for uh, this week's big talk. Stick around after the break. We're going to talk a little bit about nerd commendations. <laughs> Alrighty, folks, welcome back. It's time for everybody's favorite segment of the Nerd Byword. That's right. Chris, what's good? Okay, so I hinted at this one with last week's Nerd News story, but Marvel's What If definitely lived up to expectations. Uh, The first episode was streaming August the 11th. Um, That's yesterday by the time we're recording. But uh, it was it was super fun, and um, it, it gave us right out of the gate. It gave us Captain Carter, Peggy Carter. What if she went? Uh, what if she was the first Avenger? I think w- w- the episode's title is "What if Captain Carter was the first Avenger" or something to that effect. But um, it's just really fun. The, I mean, the "What If" comics from back in the day are always fun to revisit. Um, you know, and with so many of the voice actors, well, so many of the actors were uh, returning to voiceless characters again. Sebastian Stan is back. Haley Atwell's back. Unfortunately, Chris Evans is not back. Um, I'm, I'm sure he's, you know, moved on. He, he cashed his checks and he's on to bigger and better things. But, um, but it was a really fun kind of twist butterfly effect retelling of this universe. And it's just really fun. I'm super excited to see where they go with it. Jeffrey Wright is absolute money as we knew he would be as Uatu the Watcher. Um, I'm just, I'm just, I can't wait for the next episode and, and Marvel studios and Disney plus have done it again. And it's another appointment television, you know, I, I you know, on Wednesdays again. So I'm, I'm super excited about, 
where they're going to go. I can't wait to see the late, great Chadwick Boseman in his final performance as T'Challa, Star-Lord, though. So, like, I'm super excited to see just how crazy and twisted up things can go from here. But absolutely love the first episode. Um, I know you're a big Peggy, uh, Peggy Carter fan, even if, even if we've got to take out, uh, some, some Germans, I, I, I'm pretty sure that you'll love this one day. I wouldn't be surprised if I would love this one. I am a big Peggy Carter fan. I'm a big Captain America fan generally. And I really did enjoy a lot of the old, uh, Marvel, what if comic books. So although I've not watched this yet, it's definitely on my radar. I really want to see, you know, um, Marvel do really good with animation for a change. It feels like DC has kind of been been whipping marvel for years now when it comes to animation if they you know finally you know find their groove with animation that would be fantastic so i'm very very excited to check this out chris yeah i i will say that i thought the animation was beautiful i i would have you know and i know they probably tried to down the rating a little bit but it, it was it took me out a little bit that there wasn't any blood when people got shot so that was a bit odd uh, maybe they're trying to go for a more family-friendly approach. The, um, so it was probably like a low PG-13 rating. But the animation is absolutely gorgeous. Peggy is super fun. Like the choreography of the fight and the action scenes are is just spot on. And I absolutely loved it. And I totally echo that. I think the last Marvel animation thing that I absolutely just dug 100% was uh, a previous nerd commendation, America, or, uh, Avengers earth's mightiest heroes and that was way back in like 2011 12 so it's been a while since marvel has done anything uh in the animation game yeah so i'm I'm, i can't wait to sit down and watch this you've got me psyched up now okay dave you are going for a nostalgic bite here what you got for us yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited actually about this one. Now, I'll freely admit that uh, the Tim Burton Batman movies may not be my absolute all-time favorite interpretations of the character, but they also do hold a special place in my heart as sort of the the place where, you know, darker theatrical Batman kind of really entered the zeitgeist. And so both Batman uh, from 1989 and then Batman Returns from 1992 kind of hold a special place in my heart. So... Excitingly enough, almost 30 years later, DC Comics is basically picking up where Burton left off, ignoring the two Joel Schumacher-directed sequels, and are telling a six-part comic book miniseries that basically serves as a sequel, direct sequel to Batman Returns, called Batman 89. And in this book, writer Sam Hamm is actually... Uh, kind of fulfilling the promise of Billy D. Williams, uh, who was there as Harvey Dent uh, in the uh, Tim Burton Batman movies and then was unceremoniously dropped in Batman Forever in favor of Tommy Lee Jones when he became Two-Face. Well, uh, this story basically picks up where Batman Returns leaves off. Batman is sort of in a bad spot. Uh, You know, all the stuff from Batman Returns has made him look really bad in the eye of the public. And Harvey Dent decides to kind of go after him, go after... Uh, Commissioner Gordon for their whole little collaboration. There's also, you know, Batman imitators running around Gotham that are giving him a bad name too. And so uh, he's kind of setting up this this face-off between Harvey Dent and Batman. And of course, there's plenty of hints here that uh, Harvey Dent, of course, is going to, over the course of the story, uh, develop into the Two-Face character. Uh, The art really captures uh, the look of that sort of gothic Burton Gotham really, really well. Um, As, you know, I have to say, the Batman likeness, the suit and everything from those movies looks really good, uh, interpreted in comic book art. And then, of course, there's Michael Keaton's prominent eyebrows, uh, which, you know, are perfectly captured in the art by uh, Joe Kinona. So I'm just excited about this first issue. I think, although it's not like, you know, a 10 out of 10 or something, I feel like it lays a really interesting groundwork for sort of a an alternate reality sequel to the Tim Burton Batman movies. And if, if they continue building on this setup that they've established with this first issue, I think that this miniseries could be something uh, incredibly special, Chris. Okay, so I'm just going to ignore the slight that you made against Joel Schumacher's first Batman film, which is my guilty pleasure. I love Batman Forever, and it is the it was the quote-unquote bad movie that I will defend to the ends of the earth. Batman and Robin, not so much. That movie is hot garbage. Um, 
But um, so I was super young and it's probably just like a personal thing because of what age I was when these films came out. So I was born in 88. So 89, I obviously was do not remember viewing it in the time. Um, But I do, you know, so like I've only I haven't viewed them near enough. So I need to go back and revisit the Burton films. I'm a huge Billy D. Williams fan. So anytime he gets to shine, like I need to go back and, and definitely check that one out. Um, but it is really interesting, kind of like, this is almost like a what if, if you will, in in and of itself, like, like, what if Tim Burton got to carry out his vision, or, you know, at least this universe, maybe not Tim Burton writing it per se, but so I'm really interested to check this one out. And it's high time for a rewatch of the first two Batman films. And of course, I have to uh, say at this point that there's another comic book series coming out called Superman 78, and that really has my blood pumping, <laughs> Continu- continuing the, the the sort of Richard Donner strain of Superman movies. Um, I Oh, the excitement. You won't be able to feeling contain yourself. Oh, you I'm, I'm really, really it. psyched. Yeah, I, I can't wait, Chris. Absolutely not. All right, ladies and gentle people, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and checking out our review of The Suicide Squad. If you liked what you heard, please get on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a like, give us a five-star rating, give us whatever you got. Subscribe to our pod. Uh, check in with us every week. We are available everywhere you can find podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. If it's out there, we're on it. And of course, you can also find us at our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And if you have thoughts, comments, criticisms, or if you have different thoughts on The Suicide Squad, be sure to hit us up on social media on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually if you want to rag on us at that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris on both of those platforms uh, respectively. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.